With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Yeah, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have your time as we do what we always try to do. Turn down the noise in the news cycle, get to some things that matter, try to skip the things that don't, and do our best to try to discern the times we live in. This is something I have heard all of my life, and I'd like to deal with it because it is an election season. We're almost to election day, which means it's going to get even louder and even worse. But I want to touch on it because we just keep talking about this over and over and over again. I'm 42 years old. I've heard this all my life. At some point, I think we need to just move past it. Uh, the Media Research Center, that's a group on the right, if you're unaware, that uh, studies and covers media. Uh, this is from the Newsbusters website. We'll link to it. Read it. Make up your own mind. But they have a thing, uh, Rich Noise did this, dangerous partisanship of TV's media coverage. And they've done a study and said four years ago, TV's midterms coverage hammered Republicans and then President Trump with 88% negative spin. This year, Democrats are in charge of the White House and both chambers of Congress. And yet a new media research center, I'm quoting from their piece, and this is their own study, of ABC, CBS, and NBC evening newscasts finds Republicans are receiving coverage that's just as negative, 87%. As in 2018, while Democrats, including the president, are drawing far less scrutiny than the party out of power. Let's just stop right here. Do you live in a world where you do not understand that the network news, uh, do you live in a world that you do not understand, if you're on the right, that the network news stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, we'll go ahead and throw the cable news in there, CNN, MSNBC, whatever. No, they're not super friendly to the folks on the right. If you do not know this, you're either not paying attention or you don't want to know different or you really, really like knowing this and you just want to be fed it some more. Can we please be adults here? Everybody has bias. Yes, news media has bias. Can I tell you the most important part of the news media having bias when it comes to you discerning culture and politics? Get over it. It's not going to change. People have biases, and news media organizations are made up of people with biases. And a lot of those people have the same biases because a lot of them, they go to the same schools and have the same internships, and they're all going after the same jobs. So there's a whole lot of sameness. That's not even a criticism. That's just how it is. They all go through J school, and then they work their way up through the ranks, and they all kind of have the same life experiences, and they come from a lot of similar backgrounds, and they come from the same, for the most part, same socioeconomic classes, and they all go to the same things. There's a lot of sameness, so there's a lot of bias, and it's not actually something where it's like a conspiracy theory they think around and plan it out. It's just when you're around a lot of the same people that's had the same career path you had, you all think alike. It's just the way it is. By the way, folks on the right have the same problem. They all sit in their same groups and have a lot of group think. But can we please grow up and get over worrying about media bias? Yes, they're biased. Get over it. You have the power to completely dictate what media you intake, and everybody else does too, as long as they have a phone and or an internet connection. You don't have to watch the nightly news from the big three traditional networks. In fact, most people don't. Their ratings are way down. Folks that do, fine. There's plenty of good information in there. Here's what you should be doing instead of whining and crying about bias that you have, by the way, no control over. 
That's why people want to keep complaining about it because it's an eternal bad guy to get clicks and ratings and complain about. Here's what you should do. Just admit the bias. I'm good with, I take in left-wing media, take in progressive media, take in right-wing media. I try to take in a wide spectrum of it and then discern out what I need to know. Because here's the thing, just because you're progressive or right-wing on certain political, it doesn't mean the information you're giving me may or may not be accurate. You can have progressive outlets. ProPublica does great investigative work, even though they're very open about their progressive agenda. There's organizations on the right-wing media spectrum that I know, because I know some of the people working there, if they put something out, it's probably a quality product. Just telling me you're progressive or conservative or whatever doesn't tell me whether you're telling me the truth or not. I have to still discern that. That's the adult way to go about your media consumption. Quit whining about bad media coverage. Now, this is, of course, the business model for the folks at Media Research Center. I hope they do well. They've been around a long time. So, of course, they're going to cover it this way. But the rest of us need to be a little bit more adults about bias in the news media and just recognize it and put it into your calculation. Okay, this person has a bias in this way and they're giving me this information. And then do a little bit of discernment. Do you really want to be spoon-fed information all your life or do you want to grow up, go to the buffet and pick out what you want to eat and discern? You have that ability. You can curate your social media, your news feeds. You don't have to hear anything you don't want to have to hear. And frankly, far too many people do that. But instead of complaining about it, why don't you actually watch a little bit of it? Just say, oh, I know I'm not going to agree with all of this. Parse out the information you need and then move along and quit having a hissy fit over it. This is the very definition of caterwauling. It's just noise. There's never not going to be media bias. By the way, all your right-wing folks, that all has bias too, except you're proud of it, so then it's okay. Don't be hypocritical about this stuff. Be an adult about it. I'm fine with your biases. Just tell me them up front. Don't pretend like you don't have them. That's even worse because now you're being dishonest. Just say, here's our biases and let's push ahead. That's the adult way to go about this thing because guess who's responsible for the information you take in? It's not ABC, NBC, and CBS. It's not CNN. It's not MSNBC. It's not Fox News. It's not your favorite pundit that you're a fan of. You know who's responsible for your information intake? You are. So be responsible for it. Quit complaining about it and do something about it. You can get real ambitious and do what we did. We didn't like how some of the media stuff, so we just started doing our own show. Now, not everybody can do that, and that's fine. Not everybody likes our show. That's fine, too. I know. I read the emails. I read the direct messages sometimes from folks who get really twisted up because of something we said, even though we're not exactly throwing bombs here. We try to be pretty level and fair as best we can. It's all up to you, folks. Don't whine about it. Do something about it. That's way more productive. And it'll have a better media, and you'll feel a lot better about it, too. More Hurtel right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. 
Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Let's go to the Washington Post. Here's something interesting. Everybody's been talking about the labor market and work and how things have changed since COVID. It's the Washington Post, and they're going at it from this angle. They're saying that, and I'm quoting here, U.S. workers have gotten way less productive, but no one is sure why. That's the headline. Bosses and economists are troubled by the worst drop in U.S. worker output since 1947. Taylor Telford uh, wrote this piece in the Washington Post. It's long. Read the whole thing. Decide for yourself. Like we always said, we're going to link to it. Read it for yourself. I'm going to dive down about eh, halfway down through here. I want to talk about part of this. Um no one knows or will know what is causing the drop-off in productivity for some time, says economist Laurie Summers, uh, president emeritus of Harvard University. You've seen him on TV. But it could have something to do with the fact that many employees, quote, were working unsustainably hard in 2021. That's, of course, the COVID pandemic years. Some workers are paring back. There's a highly empowered workforce that is engaged in a certain amount of quiet quitting. That's creating a certain amount of absenteeism. This is Larry Summers quoting here on and off the job, end quote, that is probably leading to lower productivity. There are many theories on why productivity has nosedived. No one knows what to do with this tight labor market and employees gain substantial leverage amid the labor shortage. Employees gain substantial leverage amid the labor shortage, with many exercising their power by participating in the great resignation or setting more boundaries at work through quiet quitting. Companies often losing high performers who are finding jobs with higher wages and more flexibility. Another theory is that workers are just in a productivity funk. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Since the pandemic started, the link between hard work and reward has been broken for many workers, Berber said, and the result is a curbed ambition. Workers are probably encountering more leniency about producing less goods and services because it's too hard for employees to replace them. People are missing work hours or showing up late, but companies can't do anything about it because it's so hard to replace people right now. Instead of one strike, you're out. It's 10 strikes and maybe you'll be out. Mentions of burnout are also up 42%, uh, according to a Glassdoor survey compared with 2019 data. Mentions of overwork are up 12. You have to expect that takes a toll on people's productivity, Taranza said. This is a quote. This year's productivity decline came after a strong 2021 in the first quarter last year. Worker productivity grew 4.3%, one of the highest rates in years. And that slowed to a falling quarter of 2.3, which is nearly double the feasible productivity rate from 27 to 2008. Much of that boost was probably the coronavirus recession, though, people think. And then there was a surge after. What do we do with all this? I want to go back to something there that was mentioned real quick. Now, I've been a worker also been in leadership and supervision and management of workers. So I've kind of been on both ends of this one a time or two. Are workers just in a productivity funk? Maybe. Why would that be? It was also in here. There are many theories, according to the piece, why productivity has nosedived and now you have a tight labor market. Can I offer a couple of theories here? Now, these are just my humble but accurate opinion on a few things. We've been talking a lot about the labor problem in America. One of the reasons you're having a labor problem in America is you're having a management and supervision problem in American businesses. Now, what do I mean by that? COVID did something to change the psyche of the American worker that we have not seen 
probably since the Great Depression, except in very small sectors and doses. And so almost all American workers found out really quick whether they were valuable or not. You remember, you heard it all over the news over and over again. Oh, these are these are uh, essential employees. They cannot be let go. Remember, they put out the big signs outside of hospitals. You know, heroes work here. You know, we had the debate over school closures because we didn't want to put teachers and parents and other people at risk. We'll hash that out some other time. But at the same time, let me just give you an example from uh, my own personal experience. The elementary school and high school for our school district sits directly across the street from a shopping center where there's a grocery store is kind of the main hedge. And then there's, you know, the fast food restaurants and other places. So all throughout COVID, the schools were closed down. We were told everybody going over there, that's a death zone. We can't go there. And yet the exact same groups of people congregated right across the street at the grocery store every single day. And I saw this personally, the teachers, the school employees, all those folks that could not go to work because it's so dangerous had to go through the grocery store where the essential grocery store workers had to go to work whether they wanted to or not making less money, hourly money, a lot of them on minimum wage or slightly better. You do realize everybody noticed that dynamic, especially the workers who couldn't call in remote work, who couldn't go just work online. They have to show up to the grocery store and work at the grocery store. And it's an essential job, they were told, but that just means they have to work and often work even more for the same prices. People noticed that. They noticed who did have to work and who didn't have to work. In our media, especially our news media, and on our social media, remote work became a huge deal. But there's a lot of folks out there that cannot work remotely, and it did make a divide. It made up haves and haves nots. People noticed. They notice who has jobs that can most, let's just call this what it is, mostly more things like tech jobs, service side jobs, marketing jobs, managerial jobs. Higher paying jobs are more likely to be able to be worked remotely. And a lot of the service sector folks that work hourly, you notice they were essential. They have to go to work. So, of course, once the pandemic eases, those folks all have Internet. They know what's going on. They can talk to each other. They saw what happened and they had that learned experience. And a lot of them said, screw this. We're not going to take this anymore. And they started finding better jobs and they started demanding better wages and better benefits. And when certain companies had better wages and benefits, they went running over there and got them. The world has changed. Everybody has in their hand a cell phone that can give them all the information on any company at any time they want, and they can talk to employees. The days of keeping your employees locked down are over. But I don't think the management class and the supervisor class and the CEO class and the upward parts of major corporations class has quite caught on what's going on in the working class to middle class to lower management to middle management levels. They know everything now. You can't snow job them with a PowerPoint. You can't just say something is when it isn't. And the way they were treated during the COVID pandemic matters a lot to those people. A lot of them lost jobs. A lot of them lost hours. A lot of them had to quit to take care of their families because their kids weren't in school. A lot of hourly people, those folks that work, you know, 20 to 50 hours a week, give or take in swing shifts and peak hours, things like this at minimum wage and up service jobs, those people got crushed and they didn't come back a lot of them. We have a thing in our country right now where we try to broad brush things like labor because we need to fit it into a news story and we're missing one of the major stories. 
all these different groups of labor in the workforce, all these different groups of people, all these different stratas of the economic chain, all of those folks have unique needs because of things like social media and the internet and news media and the pandemic showed them this, they all found out they have a lot more power than they thought they had. And management hasn't adjusted yet. So when you go back into the office, you know what one of the, let me just be blunt from somebody that's managed an office and worked in an office. You know what one of the biggest productivity killers in an office is? It's the office. You always got an, you always got a meeting to go to, or you always got a manager you got to talk to. You got this and this and this. It's hard to work in an office. Some folks are more productive when they're at home. The reverse is true. Some people can't work at home because they can't be disciplined. They need to be in an office. But that's what we're talking about. The economy is complicated. Workers are complicated. And workers are more informed than ever as to those complications. And they've started to learn how to leverage them to get what they need. Managers, CEOs, supervisors, HR folks, hiring people, you better adapt because the workers aren't going to put up with it anymore. They're going to find out whether this other company is doing the same thing you're doing. And if they're not, and they pay better, and they have better benefits, and they're not going to drive them crazy, they're going to vote with their feet. There's some adjustments that need to be done here. It's not all on the workers. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. He is back, and we are going to really dig into something that, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand this one really well, so I enjoyed prep working. This one, Mike Viola, he's from Fee Foundation for Economic Education, did some work at the University of Chicago. If you got to go to school in the Midwest, I guess that's okay. One thing, one of these days, we're going to talk Egyptian history with him because that's what he's really passionate about, but we're going to stick to this today. You have a piece out. Mike, great to have you back, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here, Andrew. I always enjoy having you. Um, this is an interesting one because here's one of those things. We tend to think of high finance and the markets and all this thing as one kind of monolithic thing in one soundbite and just go, oh, the stock market or oh, markets or oh, regulation. This stuff's really, really complicated. It's got multiple layers to it. So you've been writing, you're writing in the center square about ESG investing. Let's go slow, okay? For people like me who didn't really know a whole lot about this other than you hear buzzwords like BlackRock, evil, that kind of mess. What is ESG, environmental social governance? Explain what it is and why it's getting into the legislative administrative realms of government instead of just finances where it came from. Sure. So- ESG, that stands for Environmental Social Governance Investing, that is a movement that, though it's existed for longer, mostly came about in the 90s, was more popular in Europe until maybe the last five to 10 years in the United States, where it's also taken off. And it, the premise is to use those environmental social governance factors as risk metrics when evaluating an investment, right? So if there's something about a company that maybe gives people pause that environmental liabilities may may complicate that as an investment may add risk to its stock price in the future that would be one of many considerations before making that investment uh 
It's a bit complicated because the movement has always had a, a weird double speak of, on one hand, claiming to be primarily concerned with the risk return profile of an investment, while in much of its marketing and in a few select cases um, in its actual management, presenting itself as a means of creating positive social change through investing. And part of the, the recent imbroglio with actual public policy has been sort of the question of where that line is drawn and what people really mean when they say that they're considering environmental social governance factors. Yeah, so let's touch in with a mooring point here before we delve out into the deep water on this. Activism and politics in investing is nothing new. We've seen this a lot. We know about, the, uh, for example, things involving the state of Israel, uh, where people want to you know, either support or not support that. We've seen states boycott other states. We've seen other energy sector. This is energy specific, but we've seen things before with, you know, divest from fossil fuels has been something for God, 20, 30 years now. We see the protests over in England, especially right now. This isn't new. What's new here is who's pushing this particular version of it. That is kind of new. That's right. The problem is the core claim of ESG to use those three factors to simply make a social or, or not so much social to improve financial risk and return is not actually a prop. It, it's not a preposterous proposal. It's pretty reasonable. You can imagine lots of situations where those would be relevant. I mean, governance, I would have thought is just, you know, didn't need a movement to tell you that you should probably consider that before investing. Uh, the problem is, as a lot of our larger asset managers in the United States, BlackRock probably being the most famous in the public discourse, as a lot of their public official or as as a lot of their public figures have started to take the position that they're actually making a difference in climate change or in the case of BlackRock CEO Larry Fink are pretty much openly climate activists that's drawn some major concerns from a lot of red states particularly those with a pretty active fossil fuel production industry yeah how much of this Mike Viola joining us. How much of this is the social media age? We're, you know, 12 to 15 years into the social media age, depending on how you want, whatever your touch point want to start. Let's say from the smartphone, from when we started getting iPhones, really, because that's what really tricked them. You don't just have companies now. People know the heads of the companies. They know the managers coming. You just touched on it. These heads of companies talking about political issues politicizes their companies, whether they want. We got this going on with the King England right now. You know, King Charles had long history of environmental activism. And they're like, you know, how much is he going to have to tone it down because he's on the throne? These things. This is not new, but the technology is bringing this to the fore. How much of that is this a component of it where, yeah, this went on. But now everything's politicalized because you know what everybody's thinking all the time if they're on social media. Yeah, I think there's a few aspects of that. I think. I remember during the George Floyd protests and really just throughout 2020 and the COVID era, that's when I noticed ESG and having previously worked in finance, when I noticed even internally ESG becoming a radically bigger factor. And I think that general perception of being a citizen who cares tended to be a lot more important to people. And that at the very same time was sort of a, a golden age of political posturing online of people sharing COVID hashtags and BLM hashtags and, and opposing Trump. Um, I think that's when that really became, when ESG joined the ranks of other issues that people could use to signal to themselves on. 
I, from a more marketing perspective, I think the real, the reason why a lot of these groups pursue that is kind of because they think this will reach young people or, and they may have been misled by polling where they ask people, do you want to invest in things that have a positive impact? And it's not like you're going to say no, but, um, to them, they may have overinterpreted this and seen it as, you know, the need to turn all of their marketing towards making political change, um, as well as maybe the general perception that it's more the left than the right that they need to appease with these types of things. joining us now where this starts to get really sticky is these are not hashtags these are government officials these are state ags these are governors the letter we're talking about is the state ags but also governors have been talking about this and obviously the senators and, and house members as well talk about the practical before we get into the theory of it though because they're talking about disinvestment those are public funds they're talking about investment of these are usually pension funds things like this this has real implications to the average people in these states. So when they start tinkering with this kind of stuff, when you're talking about investments, that's people's retirements, that's their pensions, that's other state fundings that are put away. You know, a lot of states have rainy day funds of various ways and means that draw interest through investments. Talk about that part of it, because that's one of those things that people aren't really aware of until something like COVID happens. And then they're like, well, where's our emergency money or where's our rainy day fund? This is what you're talking about getting handled, and in this case, being manipulated a little bit. That's right. So most states have some sort of retirement plan or pension system for publicly employed individuals. And it, it's worth remembering that most American adults invest in some form, and that's almost always in retirement accounts. So a lot of people are affected by that question. In a lot of states, they're naturally going to be using some of the biggest asset managers in their retirement plans, be it um, including their mutual funds in the plan or perhaps even contracting with big banks to sub-advise the plan. There's all sorts of possible arrangements, uh, but it came to a lot of red states' attention that there are ESG-supporting companies and perhaps even individual mutual funds in their plans that are, are being managed that way. And so over the summer in August, 19 attorneys general of various right-leaning states sent a letter to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. As I mentioned earlier, he has taken a very climate activist public stance and being the CEO of the largest asset manager in the United States, that has concerned people that it will affect their investments. So that letter alleged that he was engaged in, among other things, monopolistic behavior, and he alleged that they were engaged in climate, in a fossil fuel boycott. Um, I, they certainly insinuated that this would hurt their own state's bottom lines, and that's something that I absolutely, it, it is a concern that I understand, but um, it, the truth is a little more complicated than what they alleged. Yeah, Mike Viola joining us. I'm looking at the letter. Some of these make sense. Texas, of course, big oil state. West Virginia, 
state that was ravaged by the the end of the coal for all practical purposes. Louisiana, big oil state, the Gulf, most of the Gulf rigs run out of Louisiana, those sorts of things. That all makes sense. There's 19 signatures on this, though. So while I get the point of some of these states saying this, where's the line here? Because there seems to be a ratio of states that are legitimately like, look, you're really cutting into our bottom line here. And some other states that might be doing a little bit of posing here politically, because obviously it's a new tactic. We've seen a lot of things, whether it's, you know, Joe Biden with whoever he's fighting today, Ron DeSantis with Disney going after big companies and going after big financial markets. That's 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 real easy pickings politically. Where's the ratio on this one? Because not all 19 of those are directly affected here, I'm guessing. So I think the real line between the states involved and those not isn't even necessarily the extent to which they produce fossil fuels. Uh, obviously, Texas and West Virginia, um, Texas with oil and, and West Virginia with coal, they have very big concerns about the matter. I think more broadly, this is kind of just the, depending on the state, it's either a direct concern with their local economy, or it, it may just be a, a more political concern. Now, the problem with that AG letter is that the premise it's based on that is that BlackRock is engaged in climate boycott isn't exactly accurate. Um, it turns out that uh, a lot of Larry Fink's public words are in fact just words. They are invested over a hundred billion in the Texas energy sector. Um, yeah. They are looking at their balance sheet. It certainly doesn't look like they're engaged in climate boycott. Um, and while I totally get what these GOPs or, or well, I totally get why these GOP officials public line is really good politics and has a kernel to truth of truth to it. It's not actually where BlackRock is putting their money. And so while they're totally right to call out the hypocrisy and to call out Larry Fink's words, they're not actually doing much by sending this letter. In fact, by taking further steps, like many of them have, to take BlackRock's investments out of their plants entirely, they're actually just limiting investment options for their state's residents and for people in the public pension plans all over a fossil fuel boycott that doesn't really exist, monetarily speaking. Yeah. So it's interesting to put that Mike Viola joining us. I just mentioned him, uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. He likes this sort of stuff. He spent all summer fighting with Disney for you know various benefits and things. But they stayed out of this one, and you actually pointed to him as kind of what you're talking about with BlackRock is, hey, these are financial decisions that I understand that people want to have, you know, certain political leanings, but, you know, it either makes money or it don't when you get down to it, right? And he did some things with the state investment plans in Florida that you think are actually a better path, path you think is a better path forward here. That's right. So DeSantis, who normally loves being involved in every cultural war issue that comes up, which I, I'm not even criticizing him for that, just pointing out the truth, um, suspiciously didn't join this letter. Um, however, of course, he very publicly decried a lot of ESG questions, but his behind the scenes policy was ultimately a little more nuanced. That is, um, in late August, he amended the pension plans investment policy in Florida to affirm that it's actually meant for the financial return of the people invested in it. And he used a term um, called pecuniary factors, um, which he considers factors that are relevant to the risk or return of investment. He affirmed that those are the only factors that should be considered 
when investing in that state plan and that all non-pecuniary factors, including but not limited to those with, say, political concerns attached to them are not to be considered. Uh, that was actually pretty wise of him because occasionally under very specific circumstances, environmental, social, and governance factors are actually relevant to investments, not in the activist sense that the movement has turned into, but in that initial proposition that there are occasionally times where those factors will affect the risk and return profile. He essentially left open the possibility for the state pension plan to consider those when, when relevant and they must ignore them when not. Um, he certainly used the term ESG publicly as kind of a catch-all term, but behind the scenes, they've actually left it open as an option where it's actually relevant. Mike Viola joining us. Obviously, DeSantis uh, has his political concerns. Plenty of talk about after this governor race. He's maybe looking at the White House or other high office. There's just no way to separate the political part from this. That's what makes it so complicated because there's, you know, look again, like I just said, it either made money or it don't when it comes to investments, you know, and if you lose money as a state holder, <laughs> you know, you can get voted out of office or, you know, uh, you can talk to people like A. James Manson who ends up going to prison over it because they messed up all the stuff. Here's the thing. How do we parse out the political part from this, from the financial part of this, to the, well, people have a right to kind of know where their money's going? Those are three very different streams that are all crossing here, and that's kind of the jux of the problem, is it not? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think DeSantis's focus on keeping any of these political concerns out of uh, government-run investments really does a good job of getting around that core issue of like people needing to know where their money is going and also keeping the state out of these questions where possible. Um, ESG, I hope, will remain generally legal for people who choose to invest in funds of that sort, uh, but it should absolutely not be involved in state plans where if concerns become political and I, I think, unfortunately, those 19 attorneys general who signed the letter kind of ham-handedly just turned themselves into a ham-handedly created a purely political anti-ESG that is really just as political as the thing that they were protesting. Yeah, Mike, we all join us. Put your political science hat on for a second since you studied such things at prestigious institutions. Are we going to see more and more of this because of the political element of it? Like, again, something like BlackRock, that's an easy target. Oh, it, it even sounds bad, right? Like BlackRock, you know, it sounds like the Death Star, right? It just sounds bad. Are we going to see more of this because, you know, politics is getting more buzzwordy. It's getting more trendy. It's getting more viral. This seems like low-hanging fruit for people to go after. But the problem is, again, these are investments. If you start tinkering with these, a lot of these are long-term investments too. These are things that really shouldn't be knee-jerk changed because they're long-term investments. You can speak to that a little bit. 
are we going to see more of this? Because it feels like something that's getting momentum of like, well, if they did it, then I can do it. And look how they're getting credit for it. And state AGs don't get a whole lot of press. So this is a good way for them to get press. You see where I'm going with this. This seems mm-hmm. like something that's going to be a self-sustaining problem going forward. I agree. I think to mix metaphors here, I think those Republican AGs were eating the low hanging fruit of the, the cursed tree. Um, they, while it may be smart politics to oppose ESG, they made a behind the, while it may be smart politics to oppose ESG, they made a policy choice that might in fact hurt their own constituents and come back to bite them. Um, the beauty of the DeSantis move is that he both played smart short-term politics and built smart long-term policy that creates a precedent that cannot actually be used against him. I highly doubt that if a Democrat were ever elected governor of Florida, that um, Ron DeSantis or anyone in his administration would be mad if they also avoided politics in their investments. Um, I would have no problem with whichever party is, is avoiding mixing their politics with money. Um, the same can't really be true of a lot of those red state AGs, many of them in pretty light red states like Arizona, uh, where if the, the apparatus changes, um, and it doesn't look like it will this election cycle, but if um, the, the governor's house changes, um, this precedent could potentially be wielded against them, right? Um, like, say, if um, Republicans can make sure that they're not invested with any, uh, if Republicans can make sure that they're not invested in any asset manager that doesn't like fossil fuels, well, maybe Democrats can keep any Christian-friendly asset managers out of their uh, state funds. Maybe maybe Democrats would be able to adjust investments, say, to exclude mutual funds that exclude abortion, which there are some mutual funds that uh, explicitly indicate they will not invest in companies involved in abortion or um, sometimes adult entertainment or any of these other cultural issues that conservatives have a bigger problem with. So um, the room for... uh, the room for this being wielded by their opponents once they take power certainly exists um, in a lot of these red states. Not so true in Florida. Mike Viola joining us. I think, let me ask you this question because you're at fee and this is what you guys do is you kind of mix the politics with the economic and try to make it understandable to people like me. I think some of our, our you just mentioned jargon. Jargon's a good term for it. I think some of our buzzwords are a little out of date here because we talk about, you know, small government conservative or accountable monetary government, which that's off the board, but we still say the words, even though nobody's actually doing it. Is this one of those areas where we like this is where we should be holding government accountable and how they hold our funds? Because, you know, the federal government obviously gets scared. Our states hold a lot of people's pension funds and these things that that's that stewardship of public funding. We don't talk about it until it goes bankrupt or something like that. This really is an area where you find out quickly whether somebody actually knows how to govern and get things done or not. And it's not, a, you know, some kind of thing floating out in the ether where you got to try to parse it out philosophically. There's hard numbers here like, oh, no, the fund did well or it held during a crisis or it went up when times were good. This is a measurable thing of whether somebody can govern or not beside a political label. And, you know, let's be honest, if your pension's doing good, you don't care the political label or the governor or whatever. It's like, hey, my pension's doing good. This is a good thing. Isn't this something we should be talking about if you care about good, accountable government more? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I liked so much about the DeSantis move. He didn't say, is ESG in our investments or not? He said, are we focusing on the things that 
allow investments to do what they're supposed to do or not. That is to create a financial return at an acceptable risk for its investors. Um, the excitement for this easy win on the part of those Republican AGs um, doesn't really do that. And I think their reactions to just divest from all BlackRock funds uh, may come back to bite them. Mike Viola, always enjoy talking about this stuff. Let me ask you this question, because I'm always curious. How did you come up on this one to study it? I know DeSantis is real high profile right now, but ESG trying to explain it when you sit down because you could, you know, you got pretty wide reign at fee of doing pretty much economic stuff. What got you interested in this and talking about it? Because I'm always fascinated how people come to these stories and I always forget to ask them. I want to ask you, I know the DeSantis angle. Why did you get into this one? Because I found it fascinating. This is one of those ones where I actually looked up like three or four more things and read it. And there's links in here. You need to read the whole piece for yourself or posting uh, the whole thing for you. What got you into it and why do you find it so important? Yeah, so my first role out of college, actually for five years until before I worked at Fee, I, I worked in finance. I worked at a, a financial research firm. And ESG was really just starting to become a major question in the US market. And so I was involved in creating one of the very first databases of ESG funds in the world. Um, not even just ESG funds, but really any values oriented funds so it included esg funds religious oriented funds funds with some sort of values driven component to them um and what struck me back then you know i'd say this around 2018 2019 was how muddled the messaging was right like are we doing this for a better risk return profile or are we doing this for to to institute some sort of agenda in your investments um, a lot of the asset managers themselves couldn't really get their story straight. And um, as I saw this come up over the summer, um, and knowing that ESG has both kind of a, a good version and a bad version to it, um, I thought a lot of the coverage of it didn't really make sense and perhaps got a little too culture ward. Uh, that is, Republicans are against it, Democrats are for it, um, when in fact, uh, there's more to the story and a lot that uh, markets could do to sort of make ESG something useful to investors in a way that it really hasn't as it's become more of an activist tool. Yeah. See, that's why I wanted to ask you that because one thing we've been harping on pretty much since COVID, when you have a crisis, that's not the time to learn something new. That's to use the things you've already learned. And I, I'm glad that you took the knowledge. You've already been working on this. So when it came up, you're ready, you're prepared and you could explain it to us. So I appreciate the background on that. That's why we have you on, buddy. You're good at this stuff. You know what you're talking about. We're going to keep having you on. Mike Viola from Fee, also a Young Voices contributor. Always enjoy having you. We're going to have you back again. Until we get you back again, though, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing and what you got going on. For sure. You can find me on Twitter at MF underscore Viola. Some other M Viola beat me to the non-underscore version. And uh, occasionally you can find shorts, short videos I've written on uh, Foundation for Economic Education YouTube channel. Yeah, lots of good stuff. Cool organization. Make sure you're following Mike. Uh, I really enjoyed this one, both the prep work and listening and discussing it. I got a feeling we're going to be talking about this more in the future because I think this is going to keep happening, uh, especially the way politics and culture and social media is all merging. Mike Viola, great stuff, buddy. Talk again real soon, sir. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Great to be on. Thank you, sir.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's finish on a good note. I've done some pretty crazy cross-country trips. I've traveled the world. I've done multi-leg flights. I've been pretty much everywhere. This one would be up there even by my standards. Um, 57 hours cross-country road trip. They put it all on YouTube. 57 hours and 56 minutes. That's how long it took three dads to drive across the country to raise money for their son's rare genetic diseases from CNBC.com. We'll link to it. Last week, Brent Stromowski, Kevin Fry, and Peter Halliburton completed their second, quote, cannonball run, a challenge to drive from coast to coast in the shortest time possible while live streaming the entire trip on YouTube and Twitch. Three men drove from New York to California, starting at the Red Ball Garage in New York City and ending at the Portofino Hotel Marino in Redondo Beach. Along the way, they were able to raise $156,000 in donations to help fund research for SYNGAP1-related non-syndromatic intellectual disability, more commonly referred to as SYNGAP1. Last year's Cannonball raised $150,000. All donations go to the SYNGAP Research Fund, a volunteer-based organization that's a nonprofit and raises money for the illness. Took me a few months to plan and plot it out, says Jeromowski, a YouTuber who spearheaded the trip. has been fundraising for the condition for over four years now. Kyler Himes, who works with Stelmanski, also tagged along as the stream production manager. Inviting other SYNGAP dads who are also fundraising for the kids just made the most sense. This is a neurological disease people are born with, and symptoms typically appear gradually over the first few years of life, except in the more severe cases. Though genetic, the illness typically occurs spontaneously in children and does not, quote, run in the family. Severity varies from patient to patient, and symptoms can include epilepsy, autism, spectrum disorders, sleep issues, pain, and severe behavioral issues. On the average, son has 60 to 100 seizures a day. He isn't able to walk independently for long periods of time. He's also nonverbal, which means sometimes leads to physical aggression towards others when he feels misunderstood. Our lives revolve around caring for him because his needs are so severe. Likewise, Fry and Halliburton each have a child with the rare condition, and their sons also experience multiple seizures each day and require a lot of care. To encourage people to donate, Stelmowski partnered with different organizations, was able to offer up $20,000 in prizes for people who donated his live stream, and for every $69 donated, the dad spun a wheel of consequences, uh, there's several things like eat the bean boozled beans and things like this. Uh, you had to not a uh, mouth retractor that kept your mouth open for five minutes. Uh, you had to dress up in a costume at the changing station, things like this. When they hit $100,000, Stelmanski and Halliburton got tattoos of the Syngap 1 gene, the DNA code where the mutation is found. And at $150,000, Stelmanski shaved his eyebrows off. Currently, there's no cure for Syngap. Quote, none of that is getting at the root cause of the disease. If we cure the disease, we need to find a drug to make the brain make more Syngap. And we are working on ways of finding that. The Syngap Research Fund that they're raising money for invests 100% of donations into the research to cure. They are two bi-pharma companies who are working on Syngap. So it's not just a wing and a prayer. 
this money matters. We'll link to the piece. You can also give to that if you so choose to, but a pretty cool story, pretty good way to raise money. That'll do it for Hertel. Uh, wherever you are. We sure appreciate you joining. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're sharing us on your social media. Uh, our metrics are way, way up, and that's completely because of you sharing us on your social media. We don't pay for advertising other than our own social media pages, so we sure appreciate it. This has all been word of mouth because we try to do good work for you, and you seem to enjoy it. As long as you're listening and watching, we'll keep doing it. So However, you're watching on YouTube or the Big Talkers Facebook live page or listening on any of the podcasting platforms, make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you leave ratings and comments if they give you that option. It's very important for folks to know that we're worth checking out. Make sure you share us, and we'll be right here doing it again tomorrow. Make sure you check out all the things we do, the good talks, the new Herd Tell takes, the little short hits on some of the monologues. People have been asking for those. We heard you. Now we're going to put them out. And of course, twice on Sunday in the long form podcast each and every weekend. So until we talk to you again, uh, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.